The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. But pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know they were wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with my great friend, maybe maybe my best friend, what certainly one of my best friends, Holy Dr. Smokes. Paul Nelson. Uh, Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Paul, how do you feel about all that? Watto, this is a revelation. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I can keep going. <laughs> I finally graduated. I've been waiting for years for this, but this is really exciting for me. So thanks for that. I'm good, Matt. How are you? Good, good. So of course, Paul, today this is this is a Tales from the Curbside episode. We're gonna be talking about two fantastic curbsiders episodes i think you said we're not allowed to say peabody award-winning anymore <laughs> I mean, who's gonna stop us the peabody people <laughs> i don't think so okay all right so we're gonna talk we're gonna recap episodes on uh headaches specifically we're gonna focus on migraine headaches uh some of the go back through some of the newer medications and some tips and tricks we got from a great guest and then we're gonna talk about and recap our acute hypoxemia episode, which is part of our rapid response series. So Paul, with that, uh, we should remind the audience that most of our episodes are available for CME through VCU Health uh, at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. This specific episode gives me and Paul a break from CME and our team a break from CME, but the individual episodes we're talking about are available, so you can go back and claim CME credit for those at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Now, Paul... You know, uh, CME can be a headache, but we we did an episode on a headache, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give that a C plus for the transition. <laughs> no, it was great; it was really good. <laughs> this was number three forty one, featuring Dr. Kevin Weber of Ohio State University. This was produced by Chris the Chew Man Chew and Isabel Valdez, and of course, Paul. Fantastic graphics by Edison Eddie Jang. Who else, Paul? Who else? Yeah. Now, Paul, maybe you've accused yourself of being a little bit of a curmudgeon. And speaking of curmudgeons, the brain, when it comes to migraines, Paul, our guests described the brain as being a little bit of a curmudgeon. So to quote him, he said, I like to tell my patients to think about a migraine uh, like it's an irritable old miser set in its ways. And, you know, your brain, it just doesn't like a lot of changes. So lack of sleep, being hungry, being thirsty, uh, changes in the weather, Paul, these things all, they can set the brain off. And uh, I think that's helpful. And in counseling a patient with migraines, I'm not sure if you have a spiel, but I, I've been using that one. Yeah, same. It's, I, I think we, we've talked before. It's, it's, sometimes we get so excited to talk about medications and interventions, we kind of forget about just the basic supportive stuff that actually prevents migraines. And I think just to remember just the usual stuff that everyone gets mad at you for saying, drink a glass of water, make sure you get enough sleep. Um, easier said than done in a lot of circumstances, but also really yeah. helpful for your migraineurs. And and you made the point, Paul, you, you asked him, you said, you know, when I think of headaches, I just think of migraines, tension type, and then everything else. Is that an oak? And he, he gave you the blessing for that, Paul. He said, I actually think that's a good way to think about headaches because- yep. In primary care, pretty much those two types, migraines and tension type, those are in our wheelhouse. I think if you think someone has one of these other types of headaches, certainly you're well within your rights to refer them to neurology. And uh, I th I, so I think that's a good framework to have. The the red flags, Paul, what did you think? <laughs> what do you think about mnemonics, Paul? This there We, we talked about the Snoop 10 mnemonic. Uh, do, do you find, have you started to use that? 
I I have not, and this is it's no one's fault but mine. I don't do well with mnemonics because I can't remember what the mnemonics actually stand for. And I think the Snoops ten, it seems like a good one, but I would have to look it up to know all the ten things. That's the part of the ten that I'm supposed to remember. So, but right. I, I think for the most part, it's really a guide to sort of make you think of other secondary causes of headaches that are not just bread and butter migraine. Is that exactly? Is that kind of your yeah. understanding of things? That's exactly right. Like when you, because not everybody, if you have a, a teenager or a kid or a young adult that's presenting with classic migraines, they've had them for a while, you don't necessarily need to to get any any CNS imaging, uh, which usually is going to be an MRI of the brain. But if, if someone, let's say, especially if you if they have malignancy or you suspect malignancy, or if they have their first and worst headache, um, if they're immunocompromised. You know, those are some things that might point you in the direction. But the Snoop 10, you can look it up. That's a whole list of things that that might make you think about getting imaging to look for a secondary cause of a headache. But, you know, it's I'm with you, Paul. The mnemonics, like I remember the mnemonic, but I don't remember what what goes with each letter. And then it's not helping me. And I think you might have to help me with this. I might have the society wrong, but I I believe he said that the International Headache Society actually came out with fairly uh, clear guidelines for imaging. Um, actually, right before COVID happened, so those those guidelines may have gotten kind of washed away by sort of other news. But there are pretty well defined guidelines if you're. So that's probably what I would sort of look up to as, and maybe, yeah. maybe the Snoop Ten. But I would probably look at the guidelines too. So, Paul, for abortive therapies for migraine, because I, I do want to spend most of this recap talking about the the therapies for migraine, the the over the counter ones that most patients have tried and most most uh, you know clinicians are familiar with are things like. You have your aspirin, acetaminophen, caffeine combination, which is branded as Excedrin. And that one, um, I know a lot of patients like to take that. And then you have your just run-of-the-mill acetaminophen and NSAIDs. But beyond that, uh, there's there's a lot of new agents. So, Paul, what's has your practice changed with the triptans? He gave us some newer ones that I hadn't really been using. Usually I'm using sumatriptan, but this this is practice changing for me. I'm going to be trying these new ones out now. Yeah, and my my practice has been the same. Like I'd lean fairly heavily into sumatriptan. You know, your your first love um, is is the one that's kind of hard <laughs> to forget. But uh, Dr. Weber talked about rizotriptan, so that's rizotriptan and naratriptan specifically as sort of newer triptans that seem to have fewer side effects and are better tolerated. Um, Matt, if memory serves, rizotriptan has a little bit of a quicker onset of action, but the naratriptan tends to last a little bit longer. If that sort yep. of helps you make the differentiation, um, and then just as we're talking about. Uh, the triptans that they're, you know, it's every time I order one for my patients, I don't know about you, I get about 27 different scary pop-ups from my electronic health records saying I get the patient <laughs> serotonin toxicity. And then, um, you know, I, I have to sign a legal waiver saying that it's okay. But Dr. Weber made the point that um, really that is just mostly a theoretical concern has not been borne out in observational studies. So you, you can prescribe the triptans with a fair amount of confidence for patients who are on other psychiatric medications and not have to worry about sending them screaming into to serotonin toxicity. Yeah. And the the main one that he said he doesn't mess with is patients with known cardiovascular or cerebrovascular disease. There's not a ton of evidence. It's theoretical because they cause vasoconstriction. Um, I I think people with uncontrolled hypertension is the other group. So a lot of your younger patients aren't going to have these problems. So you you can use them in the younger patients. But if if they're middle age or older and sicker, then you definitely think about these. And that's why we're going to talk about in a second, the newer the newer agents have really been great because they don't have any contraindication for patients with prior cardiovascular disease, which has really been helpful to a lot of people. Uh, Matt, with I the, do think it's worth mentioning, 
the oh, most, yeah. or one of the more common side effects is actually chest pressure. So it, yes. it's one more good reason to not prescribe that to a patient population that has possible atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease because first of all, it muddies the water and second of all, it would sort of be scary. But just know when you're prescribing it, even for patients who don't have those things, it's probably worth mentioning. You might experience a little bit of chest pressure with this medication, um, yeah. which is not something I had been doing routinely. It, same, same. So I, I feel very guilty about that, uh, but I am certainly talking about that now. One one time people may want to still reach for sumatriptan is, and we I don't remember if we talked about with this with Dr. Weber or with a prior headache guest was just, if patients have a lot of like nausea and difficulty keeping meds down or they're vomiting with their headaches, the, the sumatriptan has a, a nasal formulation or a subcutaneous formulation. And that can, you know, that can be good for patients who are having a lot of stomach upset with their, with their migraine headaches. So that is one of the reasons it sounded like he, he was still reaching for it because it just has a lot more options in the delivery system. But the new, the newer meds, and Paul, I, I'm not sure, I didn't ask you this yet. Have you prescribed any of the new, the CGRP agents or the, the DITANs? No, I, I wish I was so bold, but I, was, I have been leaving those in the hands of my capable neurology colleagues so far. What about you? I, I have tried. Uh, I've, you, usually I have been referring patients to neurology. And, and I, I'll say part of, I mean, we're going to talk about this a little more later, but I've, I've had pretty good success with just the classic agents and uh, using preventive therapies, the ones that are generic and older, which we'll talk about a little later. So I haven't had too much cause for this, but now I think you know, the one or two patients I have in my panel um, that that are having more difficult trouble with migraines, you know, I would feel more comfortable prescribing these now. So the the newer agents, there's oral abortive therapies, the G-Pants, these are CGRP receptor antagonists, and they they can be used for abortive therapy. There's Ubrojapant and Remegipant. And they're both taken by mouth. Uh, Brojapant is twice, you can take it t- up to twice a day for abortive therapy. And Remegipant, you can take it once daily. Um, it's longer acting. Actually, can, Remegipant can even be given as a preventive uh, taken every other day. And uh, these agents, they can be given right along with acetaminophen, NSAIDs, and the aspirin, acetaminophen, caffeine combination meds, like so the over-the-counter meds. And he even mentioned he has some patients who... If they are getting relief from triptans, but the triptan use is too frequent and he's worried about medication overuse headache, then this can sort of supplement that. So they can alternate. Some days they can take the G-pants and some days they can take the triptans. So those are uh, those are some of the newer abortive therapies. And then this lasmiditan, Paul, it's hard to say. Uh, have you have you seen this one in the wild? I haven't seen it in the wild yet. Do you? Not yet. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm also, by the way, just deeply grateful you're doing this section, not me. I'm so glad to have dodged the bullet having to say these names out loud. <laughs> and the the big challenge about this one, Paul, I, I just always think about uh, some of the famous people who have gotten into trouble with the Z drugs uh, and, and driving uh, or having these like, right. um, you know, episodes where they don't remember. But Lasmiditan has a warning on it that you basically need an eight hour driving restriction if you take it. And I think I see that as kind of a big in, impediment to taking this medicine. So he says he's really limited it to taking it to people who are mostly home, not out driving, because he'd worry about the sed- sedative effect of uh, the the ditan, lasmiditan. But this one too can be used in patients with vascular disease, so it does have some upside to it. And, and maybe future agents will be less sedating, but I don't know. 
One practical tip that Dr. Weber gave about one of the newer agents is the remigipant. And Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but he talked about how if you're using it as prophylaxis, so every other day, and you have a headache, you can then just take it as an abortive and then sort of reset your cycle. So you can take it as an abortive and then start taking it every other day. So for instance, if you usually take it Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you have a headache on Tuesday, take it on Tuesday, and then you sort of move everything to Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday um, instead. So I just thought that was, I felt at least empowered to kind of guide patients in that way, even though I may not be prescribing it as of yet. So I thought that was a nice little little pointer as well. Agreed. And uh, probably the audience is thinking, well, how am I going to get these covered? He did mention that sometimes insurance companies want you to have tried, well, certainly other abortive medications and sometimes up to two triptan agents um, before you get to these. So again, this is helpful if you've tried some other things. If you don't feel comfortable prescribing these them yourself, at least try uh, resitriptan, narrotriptan, or sumatriptan, something like that before you send the patient uh, and try to get them these newer agents covered. But uh, definitely, definitely want to try some things um, to, and and then uh, the other medicines that are newer and that these are more preventive therapy. So there's one of the G pants or two, two of the G pants. The remedipant can be given every other day as preventive therapy, and then there's another one, atojapant, A T O Japant. Paul, <laughs> is, uh, that's a daily uh, therapy for prevention. It's not an abortive therapy. It's just for prevention. And so that's another option that you can give people. Um, we'll talk about the traditional preventives in just a moment here, but the other preventives that are CGP, the CGRP agents, they're monoclonal antibodies, Paul. There's fremenizumab, arenimab, and <laughs> Galcanezumab and eptinezumab, Paul. Maybe I got some of those right. No, that was stellar. Great stuff. But essentially, these medications, um, he said, are well tolerated. They typically, again, you want to have tried a couple other preventive therapies before you're going to get these covered, and uh, they're they're given either by injection or infusion usually once a month or once every three months. It depends on the agent. And I've seen maybe a couple patients on these. I guess it just probably just depends on your practice and that maybe that's just uh, sampling bias. But Paul, you know, I like to set you up for this point because you're, you're like everyone's favorite primary care doctor. Is there anything we can offer in primary care? I'm guessing no, but uh, <laughs> prove me wrong. <laughs> Matt, so much stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, we... We actually were fortunate enough to be trained that migraines are well within the purview of, of primary care doctors. I think you, you have a lot of tools in your armamentarium before you necessarily have to escalate to neurology. Um, there's a lot of medications that we already have comfort with. I think the antihypertensives are probably the most obvious class of medications that we're already probably using. So the beta blockers, specifically like natalol or atenolol, I think we all know about. One that was new for me um, and that Dr. Weber was particularly excited about was candesartan, the ARB, as migraine prophylaxis, which I had never heard of and I'm excited to try. Um, and then the, the calcium channel blockers like for Apamil are, are obviously a consideration as well. Matt, have you been using uh, candesartan? Have you had occasion to start that as your prophylaxis yet? I uh, I have not, but I have been using candesartan, Paul, because with our, our blood pressure episode we did relatively recently with Dr. Jordy Cohen, um, we we talked about th- some of the longer acting because Losartan, yeah. even though it's everyone's favorite generic, it's not as long acting, but candesartan, telmosartan, olmosartan are, are longer acting. So I have been using it for that. And 
which brings me to the next point is, and that you made this on the episode, Paul, that you, you know, think about dual purposing these medications because there's a lot of great options, but maybe if, if someone has high blood pressure and migraines, you know, you start with a blood pressure agent. If someone has, um, maybe someone has obesity, they're trying to lose weight. You can use topiramate. He mentioned uh, topiramate is a great uh, medicine for migraine prevention as well. And, uh, I think you've made the point on prior, prior shows about, uh, the TCAs, amitriptyline, nortriptyline for patients with all sorts of different problems, maybe depression or neuropathic pain. So, Lots or even of, trouble sleeping, like nortriptyline yeah. in particular, is is not a bad choice. Well, it's it's not a great choice for monotherapy for insomnia. But if someone also has migraines, then it's it's one to at least consider right. reaching for. I think a lot of people are a little bit scared of TCAs, maybe because of their recent time um, doing rotations in the ICU. But they're 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 well tolerated by a lot of yeah. patients, and there are indications for some. And then the the last one, sorry, I cut you off, Matt, is uh, the venlafaxine is not one that I had thought of as a migraine prophylaxis, but certainly a medication I have plenty of comfort with. Have prescribed multiple times in the past. So I, I might reach for that one a little bit more readily if there's, as you say, the dual purpose indication of either like, you know, a chronic pain or or depression. Um, that might be one I might reach for a little bit more frequently now. And and we're we're primary care, Paul. I mean, we we are familiar with all of these meds uh, for the most part. Valproic acid's probably the only one on the list that um not quite, you know, that's that's not one that I routinely prescribe without someone holding my hand. <laughs> So I think this is I think this is a great opportunity for you to really set the patient up for success, um, starting them on a preventive medicine if they're having frequent migraines, and then uh, we talked about a lot of the options for abortive therapy. Uh, you know, on the episode we did talk about some of the uh, other alternative therapies. There's a lot of like wearables, I guess you would say, or or neuromodulators, Paul, like the the one that looks like a tiara or a sticker that you put on your forehead. You can buy that over yeah. the counter. So if I have the right patient, I might, you know, I, those seem relatively safe. Um, and those are something I really wasn't aware of. Um, so I'd encourage people to listen to the full episode because uh, it's hard to do it full justice by um, in, in just a short, short, um, you know, short recap episode like this, but a really great guest. And yeah, Paul, we've had some great headache episodes. I feel like maybe, maybe that's why we feel comfortable with uh, a lot of these meds, but it's still, I, I still feel like I could always learn more about headaches and I, and they're still scary to me. Yes. I, I agree with all of the above, even though I speak with confidence, they still terrify me. So it's, I'm always happy to learn more about them. We had a new series, the rapid response series that is uh, being helmed by Dr. Cyrus Askin, uh, everybody's fam- favorite brand new uh, pulmonologist, uh, newly minted pulmonologist. And we had the guest, Dr. Nick Mark of uh, the ICU One Pager fame and Twitter fame, Paul. Uh, he's also been on the on the show before. Yep. Uh, he was a great guest. The graphics for this episode were done by Edison Eddie Jang, and we talked about so much. This was this was more physiology than than we usually do, Paul. But it was very interesting. And D- Dr. Mark Nick has a great. Uh, I think he has a talent for talking about that sort of stuff and making it seem more approachable. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly got very uh, well defined schemas, as evidence. Sort of, he he does these IC one pagers that are just these schematics that sort of outline all these complex physiologic concepts very very straightforwardly. So yeah, he's a fantastic guest. But before we even got into the physiology, we actually, we talked a little bit about fundamentals and just sort of, we defined our terms a little bit, Matt. Did you want to run us through it? Yeah. So I, you know, I know, I know we have a lot of, uh, Paul, you and I are becoming less young by the moment. Uh, 
But uh, we we have a lot of younger people, and I I know they're still in training. They want to sound smart, and they're still being graded. So uh, when you're hanging around with pulmonologists, I'm not sure where you're going with that, by the way. I'm like, I, when you're hanging around with pulmonologists, old. you want to make oh, sure, sure you use the right terminology. Great. Yeah, that was a that was way too long <laughs> of a walk. Sorry, audience. <laughs> but uh, hypoxemia, low oxygen in the blood. That's that's typically the number you're going to get from a pulse oximeter. So that's hypoxemia. That's that's the pulse oximeter reading. Hypoxia is how much oxygen is there at the level of the tissues. And that's that's a different story. So, you know, having tissue hypoxia, Paul, that's bad. Uh, but it's so I've heard. Just because somebody has hypoxemia, you know, doesn't always mean they have hypoxia. It's so just kind of differentiating those terms. And then thinking about the oxygen content, that's how much oxygen is carried in the blood. So somebody with a hemoglobin of seven is not carrying as much oxygen uh, as somebody with a hemoglobin of 14. Uh, let's say they both have an oxygen saturation of 100%. The person with the, ox- with the hemoglobin of 14, even with a sat of 100%, is carrying much less oxygen in the blood. And so those were just some basic things we talked about. And then you know, delivering that oxygen is dependent on your cardiac output. That's that's the about as basic as we can get, Paul, to set things up. Now, Paul, the pulse oximeter, I mentioned it. I think <laughs> it's a flawless uh, technological achievement with zero limitations. Is anything about that statement wrong? I I mean, I, I think it's it's hard to argue. It is a technological achievement, so I, I will give it that. But I think the other parts are probably... Um, less accurate, we'll say. So it's you're setting me up to, to mention sort of how the pulse ox works and how we, we got the numbers in the first place. So it's it's actually, Dr. Mark was telling us that the way we derived the numbers from the pulse ox is we actually tested it on a bunch of servicemen back in the day. And these servicemen were almost exclusively white. And what we did is we gave them sort of increasingly low content, lower concentrations of oxygen um, and then would sort of map that out across um, sort of use that then derive what the pulse ox was when using the pulse oximeter. And the limitations there are, are twofold. The first and probably probably the most worrisome, I guess, is the fact that because they were almost exclusively white, there was no skin tone variation. And so as a result, pulse oximetry is less accurate in darker pigmented melanated skin. And so this is, and we're talking percentages like 3%, which on the face of it doesn't sound like much, but 3% can be the difference between a lot of clinical decision-making that we get. It can be the difference between whether someone gets supplemental oxygen supplied to them or not, or the decision to use steroids in COVID, I think was the other example that he used or not. Yep. Like 3% in in pulse oximetry is actually a really big deal. So knowing that you have that limitation in um, in darker pigmented patients is actually really important to know. And if you, I think, Matt, you made the point elsewhere, if the accuracy becomes important as opposed to the specificity, then probably you're duty-bound to get yourself uh, an arterial blood gas just to get a truly accurate number and make sure that you're actually doing your due diligence. Yeah, because I, I, I imagine, um, hopefully, and I, I had seen at least some news stories, I don't know how far along this is, people are trying to write this by updating the technology to to work on a wider variety of skin pigmentation. So yeah, for now, you may be stuck, especially if you're going to base a very important decision on and trying to just get a blood gas to get a more um, accurate measurement of the the person's oxygen level. So, um, and then Paul, did did you make the point yet about now when, when you put someone on supplemental oxygen, the pulse oximeter immediately registers that, right? Like, so if I don't see that oxygen jump up to one hundred percent right away, I should be very worried because there's no chance it's going to get better. Correct. Yeah, you failed, and you should intubate just immediately. <laughs> 
no, that's that's <laughs> obviously so. The, the point that you're alluding to is that there is going to be a lag between your intervention and the, the change in the pulse ox reading. So the pulse oximeter is not going to register things immediately because it takes time to pump the blood from the heart to the periphery where the actual pulse ox is being measured. So if someone has a, a low cardiac output, it might even take a little bit longer. But Dr. Mark gave us about like at least 30 seconds before you're going to start to see the intervention change. So do not panic if after you turn up the FiO2 or you um, apply uh, non-invasive ventilation. If you don't see the change immediately, give, give the patient a chance to equilibrate because it actually takes some time from the blood from the, to go from the heart to the fingertip, where presumably the pulse oximeter is actually attached. So just be a little Th bit. This seems like one where, like, right? This, this seems like one where people can slow their roll for like thirty seconds when they yeah. make a change, uh, rather than be like, "Oh no, it's not working. Let's go to the next thing." And you might not have given it enough time. Right. Recognizing um, that in a rapid response, 30 seconds feels like two and a half hours. Yeah. yeah, it's one of those things where check your own pulse for a second. Just give your intervention a chance to work. Now, Paul, I, I think so since since we the hypothetical case we were going through throughout this episode was a rapid response where you're walking to the rapid response and talking about like, what's the first thing you do when you get in the room? And uh, so sick or not sick is going to be, you know, the first thing in your assessment. And we talked about some of the things that are definitely bad signs are if the person has like if their mental status is bad. If they're tripoding, where they're sort of like putting their arms behind them and leaning their head back, and you know, putting pu putting their chest forward, that's always a bad sign. I I don't I usually don't see that end <laughs> yep. well. And then uh, a lots of accessory muscle use. Though you know, that's a sign someone's sick. Someone's working very hard to breathe. Paul, you asked you asked the question about how do you recognize someone who's not protecting their airway? And uh, do you remember what Dr. Mark's response was to that question? <laughs> He, in his defense, said not to be crass to qualify, but then said it's, it's sort of the, the classic joke. It's like pornography. You know it when you see it. And, I, you know, which I, I suppose is fair. So, for instance, if you see someone who has like massive epistaxis, like probably they're not protecting their airway or they're actively throwing up or if they don't have a gag upon suctioning, like there's there's a, a fair number of obvious indicators. And sometimes it might be a little bit more subtle. But for the most part, at least according to Dr. Mark, like you, you get a sense just by actually examining the patient, sort of, you'll you'll see what's going on and recognize it when you see it, right. which is reassuring to me. Yeah, I, I mean, I I always I, I was glad you asked that question, Paul, because that was one of those things where I would always hear people be like, "Oh yeah, protecting their airway," and I I sort of thought it was what he said, but it was good to hear him confirm that what I had been taking that to mean was actually pretty close to 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 what it means, and that it's not always like super clear cut. That yeah, exactly. So anyway. Uh, I, I was glad that you were brave enough to ask that question, Paul. Thank you. Uh, I'm I sure the audience thanks you as well. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, and then we, we talked about this, Paul, the, the pulse oximeter, um, you know, looking at that, make sure uh, I, I mentioned I've been burned by this before. Sometimes, even if it's just like hanging by the side of the bed, it still can give you what looks like if it's swinging back and forth or something, it can still give you what looks like a tracing. So just make sure it's actually on the patient and look at the waveform to see, does it look like it's tracking with the heartbeat? And uh, and then how how low is the oxygen? I mean, that's going to tell you the level the level of severity. So if it's very severe, like, uh, you know, low 70s or, or less, you know, that's worse, obviously, than if it's in the high 80s. And well, it raises the other point about pulse oximetry, right? Yeah. Is that the, the low pulse oxes are theoretical because, again, because they were doing these on volunteers, they couldn't just lower their oxygen until they died. So like they, they, there was a cutoff. So like this is mostly a projected number. And so once you get below right. a certain threshold, I, I think Nick said 70%, like it's, it's, it's almost kind of immaterial. So like, yeah. you know, it's, it's just below 
if someone's pulse ox is in the seventies, it's bad. So like the degree of right. the, the the degree of badness is almost academic at that point. But yeah. just recognize that the lower ends of the pulse ox, those numbers are not um neither specific nor accurate. And that was completely new information to me. So I had never I had never heard that before. Uh, and and I think it's useful to know that clinically too. Now the so of course you go into the room um, in the old days, Paul. We'd have the paper chart in front of us, flipping through, trying to figure out what happened, <laughs> what medicines uh-huh. were recently given. Nowadays, probably you're gonna have someone on the computer telling you recent medicines that were administered and what the hospital co- what's been going on in the hospital course. But as you're doing that. Uh, if you happen to have, uh, so of course you're going to listen to the heart and lungs, do a physical exam, looking for edema and such. But uh, if you have a point of care ultrasound, Dr. Mark mentioned that that's something he finds helpful. He may look for B lines in the lungs as a sign of pulmonary edema. He may look for lung sliding to see if the patient has a pneumothorax, and then uh, looking for things like pleural effusions. Uh, and then at the heart. Is the, is the RV, does it look like the right side of the heart is large and overloaded um, with pressure or does, does it look like the EF is low? So you can tell a lot from a point of care ultrasound if you know how to use it. And then the testing is pretty basic, chest X-ray, some blood work, maybe a lactate uh, and a blood gas. And the blood gas is really what's gonna inform our differential diagnosis. And Paul, there was quite a few causes of hypoxemia, but uh, what did you think about this breakdown? Had you heard this before? I had not heard it said in exactly this way. So I actually found this a really uh, useful framework in terms of how to go through. Right. So there's the, based on the AA gradient, uh, or what Dr. Mark likes to call the AA difference, you you can sort of split things into, is it a normal AA gradient? Um, and there's a couple things that cause that. So the low inspired oxygen content is one of them, Paul, and that usually happens at altitude. So most of the time you can just knock that off your list, uh, depending right. on, unless you're on like Everest or something, evaluating this patient. Um, and then uh, hypoventilation is is something that can cause a normal AA gradient, um, but, but low oxygen. And then the final one was low mixed venous oxygen, uh, oxygen concentration. Um, but the most common one you're probably going to see in a rapid response. And I think what's the most, probably the pearl that people will be able to remember is VQ mismatch. So that's ventilation perfusion mismatch. Um, that could be something like a pulmonary embolism that would give you a high AA gradient. Um, it could just be uh, obstructive lung disease or some sort of filling process like a pneumonia or pulmonary edema. You know, that's probably, those are probably the most common causes. But the way you differentiate that from a shunt, which is another potential cause of an elevated AA gradient, is when you when you slap oxygen on the person, uh, does does the oxygen level improve at all? Because oxygen that is not going to correct or is very difficult to correct with large amounts of supplemental oxygen, you know, you got to think about a shunt um, in that situation. So I think that's one of the most useful things. Like if you put the oxygen on, they don't get better Then you know, a, you haven't bought yourself time and B, you got to think about, could this be a shunt? And Paul, what about the, he told us one, one, uh, iatrogenic cause of shunting, which I'm going to let you do talk about this one. Yeah, no, he just has pulled this. And I think he even framed it, you know, when you're a pulmonology fellow, you'll get this consult at least once per week. And I'm like, I have never thought of this ever in my life. And I am ashamed <laughs> But basically, the, you can actually cause an iatrogenic shunt um, by the administration of either nitrates or calcium channel blockers and impair the way he describes the lungs is very smart. And they just they know to sort of vasoconstrict to stay away from areas of hypoxic 
hypoxia. But if you impair that, then you actually create this this iatrogenic shunt. And one way to do that is to actually administer nitrates or calcium channel blockers, which will impair the, the lungs ability to vasoconstrict. Do I, does that sound right, Matt? That sounds right. And Paul, I think we agreed on a different recording that uh, if, if you make this diagnosis, uh, you have to... Uh, Slam the pulse ox on the floor and moonwalk out of the room. So, right. And the patient that you'd see this in is somebody who has already like a little bit of underlying atelectasis or maybe a small pleural effusion. So, they have the capacity for things to go a little bit south already. And then that's augmented as soon as you give one of these medications that impairs um, the vasoconstriction. And then you've you've apparently made the diagnosis in a way that I have never actually done. But yeah, that's, that's right. You're a hero if you actually get to make this. And, and Paul, I think we forgot to say this, but, uh, you know, let's say if, if you're like me, uh, and this was a long time ago now, but, uh, my first, my first night of night, my first night of residency was night float. And I went into the room of a patient with hypoxemia, Paul, and I called my senior and he was like, did you sit the patient up? And I was like, no. And he's like, okay, sit the patient up. And he goes, did you put him on supplemental oxygen? I was like, no. And he's like, okay, do those things and I'll meet you at the bedside. So simple thing. And if, if they're already on oxygen, turn it up, sit them up, and then, you know, then go from there. But uh, those things go a long way. And I, th I think you made that point on the episode. So supplemental, I mentioned turning up the oxygen, Paul. Um, you want to talk us a little bit through oxygen delivery and uh, any anything here that stuck out to you the way that the way that we talked about it we we sort of went through in a stepwise fashion. No, I, I it's it's I think it was helpful. It is fundamental, but I also think the fundamentals are are important to know and often neglected. Everyone just kind of assumes that you know. So I think to kind of go through them step by step was was really helpful. Do you want me to just kind of tick them off real quick? Yeah. So what about the nasal cannula? Like how much, uh, what percent increase in oxygen am I, should I expect for like each liter I give there? I feel like that's a good, that's a good pearl to have in your pocket if you're, uh, you know, if you're taking care of patients. Yeah. You should expect, uh, if, if memory serves and this figure is correct, a roughly 3% increase in FiO2 for every liter of oxygen that actually increased delivery. And the, the nasal cannula, the typical one that doesn't have like the reservoir or anything else attached, which is the two prongs that go up the nose, will give you between one to six liters of oxygen per minute, uh, I think is important yeah. to know. So if you're starting at 20% oxygen in ambient air, and you know if you have them on six liters, maybe you can get them up to like close high 30s, close to 40% FiO2. And even though there's 100% oxygen coming out of those prongs, you're you're pulling in so much uh, ambient air around it that it just dilutes the air, and and that's why you're not getting like you know the same kind of thing as 100% uh, oxygen. Um, so I, I thought that was an interesting, I guess, entrained air, Paul. That's the that's a term I hadn't heard before, but I I came across when uh, when researching this episode. So face masks, Paul. What about those? Yeah, it's, it gives you a little bit more bang for your buck. And again, you're, you can still, you still have this admixture of the ambient air. It's not perfect. That will give you between 10 to 12 liters per minute. Um, so, which equates to about an average FiO2 between 45 and 50%. So again, sort of as we're ramping things up, certainly uh, a higher oxygen delivery, but it's not it's not 100% oxygen because it's, you're, again, you're still, there's still capacity to kind of bring in some ambient yeah. air along with that. And then, and then moving the, up. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was going to say the non. Let's trade them off. The non-rebreather. Yep. So the non-rebreather, that's the one with the bag on it. It has a face mask with a bag. The bag fills with oxygen. So that's 100% oxygen. Probably your lungs are bigger than the bag. <laughs> Hopefully your lungs are bigger right. than the bag, Paul. So, you know, when you breathe that in, that the bag is filled with 100% oxygen, but probably you're getting some 
uh, entrained air as well. Plus, your, that bag's not going to fill your lungs totally, but it's it's close to 100% oxygen that you're getting there. And then, uh, if you really need the big gun, Paul, you know what are you what are you going for next? All right, the step right below where we're talking um, positive pressure airway support is the high flow nasal cannula, which is like I, I think it's like this mounted unit that just sort of blasts air. <laughs> uh, it's humidified air being the important thing where you can also control the flow rate as well. And you can increase the FiO2 up to 100%. And it also provides just a little bit of peep um, to keep those airways open before right. you're actually bringing in sort of um, the fancier pants machines and you've progressed all the way to the the non-invasive positive pressure support. Yeah. And, and he mentioned, and we had in our original show notes for this one, that for patients with like pure hypoxemic respiratory failure, uh, the high flow nasal cannula can be a good choice, um, right. even compared to the positive pressure, uh, which we'll talk about. Positive pressure, non-invasive positive pressure uh, ventilation. That's like your your BiPAP, uh, your CPAP, or your your bi-level or your 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 CPAP. And uh, with the CPAP, of course, you're setting a PEEP, uh, positive end expiratory pressure. And uh, you usually you can set an FiO2 with that as well, how much oxygen you want to give along with it. And, uh, you know, with that, the main thing we talked about there is the patient has to be awake enough, Paul, that they can take the mask off if they're going to vomit. And if really they need to, um, you're probably not going to want to put it on somebody that is, is vomiting. Uh, right. And uh, so people can't be in restraints either because, you know, they need to be able to pull that mask off. So there are some limitations there. And he mentioned a good patient for uh, this is if you've given a therapy, like let's say you've given a loop diuretic to somebody in heart failure exacerbation with trouble work of breathing, it's good to put them on maybe a bi-level or, or a CPAP because it's expected to be a short time. Like you think right. the person's going to get better with the treatment you're giving. Um I, I think it's hard for patients. I've seen it done, Paul. I've seen patients stay on this for a day or two, but yeah, uh, it yeah, looks yeah. horrendous. And they're usually begging to come off by the end so they can eat and not have something like just blowing air in their face all the time. But any other thoughts about this, Paul, before we wrap things up here? No, I God, I feel like there was a point I was going to make and then I lost it somewhere in there. I, 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 I think that you hit all the high points, Matt. That was, yeah, I, I feel like we, we did a great job. We should be proud of ourselves. You know, Paul, I'm I'm always proud of you, Paul. That's every <laughs> America's uh, primary really, care doctor. Sure. Can, really you think we can get episode. that trending, Paul? No, I don't. I, I tried don't. to get the national treasure thing uh, trending for you, and now um, my new push for you is hashtag America's primary care doctor. I'll be selling supplements in no time. Yeah, to, I think that's great. <laughs> I'll have to work. I'll have to work on the hashtag. But uh, Paul, how about you take us to an outro? Happy to do so. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. <laughs> Classic stuff. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get your weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you get our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that most episodes are available through VCU Health for CME at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And 
A special thanks to my co-host for this episode, Dr. Paul Williams, America's primary care doctor, <laughs> and to our whole team. Podpaste uh, edits and produces the show. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>